Welcome to the Sisters, Friends and Guests podcast. We're your co-hosts. Jacqueline. I'm Lola. And I'm Sonia. And today we're going to be talking to a special person about leading an NGO in Uganda. Special because um, in this conversation I talk with Sonia's sister actually. Her name's Hope and she works as a director of an NGO organization in Uganda. I thought it was a really interesting topic, not least because when I think of NGOs and I think of the people that are sort of heading them up, I typically don't think that it's a local person, let alone a local woman. So Sonia, what did you think about the conversation I had with your sister? It was actually quite um, insightful. So some of the things that you guys talked about, I didn't, I didn't know. So I was listening to it as a, you know, as a cold person, as, as the rest of the listeners are listening to it as well. So for me, I found it interesting in that respect. And Jackie, did you have any sort of um, input on this, especially as someone who's also a Ugandan and I guess maybe is familiar with the NGO landscape in the country? She dispelled some of my misgivings about NGOs. I, I don't look at NGOs too favorably. I mean, I do um, accept the good work that they do, but sometimes I wonder whether or not people are in it for themselves. So I think your conversation with Hope helps dispel some of that. Well, great. Well, let's let the listeners uh, hear it for themselves and see what they think. On this week's Sisters, Friends and Guests, we talk with Hope Oken about leading on the continent. In her work as the founder and executive director of Caring Community Initiatives Uganda, an NGO based in Uganda. Hope joins us today to talk about her role leading a war-torn community to rehabilitation through health and local economics. Hi Hope, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Very, very good. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, and I'm Thank really to hearing about your organisation and, and obviously sharing that with our listeners. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role leading an NGO in Uganda? Well, my background is in public health and I'm also a social entrepreneur. I lead an organization that provides a multifaceted programs. So we address areas of healthcare. We also address education for young children. We also work with a multitude of women groups uh, dressing issues of poverty, uh, we encourage them to start up businesses, to start uh, farming. We train them into groups and we also encourage them to save. Great. So it sounds like you get involved in quite a few aspects of their lives in terms of the economics and obviously the personal health and well-being. Can I first ask what actually drew you to Uganda? Well, one thing is I'm a Ugandan. So when I heard about the, at that time, this is now nearly probably 15 years ago or more, when we, when there was a, the civil unrest that took place for nearly 30 years. And I, at that time, I was also just completing college from England. We had heard about the rebel leader fighting the government in northern Uganda and the atrocities that were committed to children and women. And so I visited Uganda, that was in 97, and I happened to visit a rehabilitation center where I listened to a young boy who had recently returned. He had been abducted and spent seven years in captivity. So when he shared his story and I listened to 
it, I was really uh, touched. I kept thinking I, I had to do something. I wanted to come and help. So that's how the whole thing started. It started off from, you know, listening to the atrocities, listening to the sad stories. I felt I wanted to help as well. Mm. So a few years later, I, I traveled, I packed my bag and I came back to Uganda. Mm. And, and just listening to what you said there, it, it, it makes me wonder. Um, so obviously the communities have endured a lot of hand, hardship, but a lot of that has come at the hands of people that look like them. So I wonder if it's, you know, it's interesting that you were drawn to Uganda, as you first said, because you're a Ugandan, but did you find it hard to, to gain their trust, being that it was, you know, other, as you said, other Ugandans that had sort of put them in this position of, of great difficulty? Well, initially, yes, because you, you know, because of the war, nobody knows who who's there for them. Their own people were fighting them. The children were being abducted. And so you come in, they're not sure whether you're going to help out. But again, you have to find ways of uh, building trust with them and uh, making sure that what you're doing is for them, not for yourself. Um, So we spent a lot of time really just having dialogue and building peace and making sure that, you know, we, we take away the suffering that, they're going through. They were traumatized. Mm. So it's really expected. Yeah. Yeah. And you also talked about um, some of the programs that you're, that you deliver to the communities as being female led or sort of trying to help women in particular. So I've always assumed that women are more readily seen as leaders within their communities in Africa. Is there any truth to this? And if so, does it help with gaining the trust as a female leader? Yes, to a great extent, uh, women are seen as leaders. I I can allude it to the the war as well. Women played a, a vital role in uh, bringing or ending the war uh, through the songs, through their advocacy, reaching out to both the local the the government and also to the rebel leaders to end the war, and so. Yes, even for me as a, a woman and, and a leader, I think when you come out, there's a trust that people believe that what you are doing is genuine because usually when women come out to do something, it's because they have seen the burden that they, that is around them. A lot of times it's about the children. A lot of times it's about uh, the community. Um, and so women come out to do something when they see a burden that affects them, not only them in their family, but the community as well. Mm. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, I'm going to change gears a bit and just sort of ask a bit more about your organization in, in particular. Um, so at some point it was rumored that Gulu Uganda had more NGOs than it did people who needed assistance. What impact did the influx of these organizations have on your particular project? It's true that there were many NGOs in Gulu, particularly during the the insurgency. But again, the war is very brutal and it was very necessary for all those NGOs to be there um, 
to this day, the impact of the war is still felt. We still see a lot of people traumatized. Many people have not recovered from the war. They've lost their land. They've lost their lives. They've lost their livelihoods. They've lost uh, their children. And so the impact is still felt to this day. So the number of NGOs is immaterial. Mm. But for us, again, um, partnering with NGOs is particularly very important because we continue to work. We all have different areas that we are addressing, but partnership is also very crucial. So for the, those who have remained, the NGOs that have continued uh, to carry on with work, we have also partnered with some of them. And that is still important for us because we cannot address everything on our own. Yeah, that's good to hear. And it, and it does make a lot of sense that instead of building silos, that there's a lot of inroads being built between the different organizations. Yeah. Um, and as you've spoken a lot about the wall, I'd just like to ask how much of the work done by your organization is preventative as opposed to responsive in nature? Most of our work is preventative. As a public health specialist, I, I focus a lot on prevention. Our healthcare project uh, ensures that we reach out to the community and address some of those conditions at the community. So, for example, immunization is a preventative approach so that we can reduce the number of children, especially under five, dying at an early age. Uh, even for pregnant mothers, uh, we carry out immunization. We also do a lot of health education and talks and, uh, you know, distributing bed nets to reduce incidences of malaria and, and several other things that we, we carry out in schools, deworming exercises and uh for young adolescents, you know, we teach them about sexual and reproductive health and also all that is really to reduce incidences or, you know, HIV AIDS. We want to eliminate HIV AIDS. Um, those, those are some of the targets we are doing. So at the clinics, it's only when somebody is really sick, then we will cure. But we ensure that we spend a lot of time in the community. And then with the women groups as well, how do we address poverty and, uh, you know, gender-based violence? So there's a lot of talks that we give out to them, educate them on business skills and several other things. So all that is really to build their, their skills, to, you know, empower them as well, to be able to do what they can do. And, and you've, you've spoken about it already here and there, but, but I'd just like, like to actually ask you the question, how do you think your particular background and experience helps you lead the organization? And are there any areas that you found a bit more challenging? Well, my, my background um, in public health, and, and also I have a master's in business administration, of course, puts me at a, 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 gives me an opportunity to be able to address the needs as they arise at, a, at, at an upper level, it gives me at a, an advantage as well. So I don't only have to depend on maybe reading materials, but I know I'm speaking from experience. And so in terms of challenges, I don't look at those as challenges because the whole aspect of running projects is to address those challenges. So whatever challenge comes in, we find solutions for them. How do we work out 
in, on issues to do with uh, women empowerment. So we dialogue with them. They, they come out with solutions. A lot of times it's not me who gives them the ideas, but you know, you give them the platform and then they come out with ideas on how best to address their, their problems in their community. Yeah, I guess it's also about instilling some sense of empowerment as well. And, and I guess you just being there in the role that you are in does that in a subconscious way. So you've already mentioned that um, part of your role in heading an NGO requires that you do have contact with other um, counterparties. So other organizations in the area, other obviously people leading those organizations. Is it common to find other black women in these roles, leadership particularly? Not as much as we should have but they, they are there. But re, um, remember, we, we are in a very male-dominated society. And so some, certain positions are usually taken up by men. Uh, but again, yes, there are some women who are taking up leadership positions. Great. And, and what about the team that you are leading? Roughly, what is the makeup in terms of the demographics of your team members? I must say that we haven't really addressed gender balance as such, but this organization is a women-led organization. So we have more women than uh, men in this organization. It really shouldn't be like that, but somehow, because we work a lot with women um, at, at all levels, so somehow we the women have dominated here, unfortunately. Mm. And actually, having yeah. said that, have you faced challenges working in a community that is more largely dominated by a patriarchy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. De- uh, a lot of times, um, the men ne- fair, rarely believe that you can do as well as them. Uh, they will always believe that you can only go so f- so far, and at some point you can't do as much as they can do um they will challenge you um they will disagree with your decisions and of course if they see a woman who's really growing in terms of career or or any business they'll kind of you know there's those mockery words that they'll bring out they'll probably want to relate you to a man they'll probably call you this is this woman is behaving like a man <laughs> and so, so those are the kind of things that are usually said to women who who are trying to, you know, climb up their career. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Having read what motivated you to found um, ACIU, I couldn't help but notice how a personal sense of faith and community propelled you. You mentioned that KCIU was a way for you to help your community. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'm, I'm a Christian. And so I think what drew me to what I'm doing, I believe, is a calling. I, Like I said, when I listened to that young man's story, I could not walk away back to England and get on with my life. I bring it back to the biblical story of the Good Samaritan where there was an injured man and um, there was one man who stopped and picked up the injured man and took him and 
and nurtured him and, and until he healed. And, and I thought this is how we are supposed to be, to be able to look out for one another, to be able to help each other when, we, when the other person falls. We should hold each other's hands. We should support each other. And to me, that is how I, I look at life at, at different levels. We must really be able to support one another. So my faith is uh, very strong. I believe that God was calling me to do this, to find in my little way. I don't think I've done a lot, but uh, we, we are supposed to be each other's keepers. This organization has from under tree. We were just immunizing children at that time, but today we have grown. We have grown from that tree to two health centers. We've built a school. We've built a model farm. And so out of that, we have, done, we have reached out to, to so many vulnerable people. And I know that we have changed a lot of people's lives from the work we have done. Absolutely. I can imagine. And, and like I said, one of the things that I find so interesting about what your NGO does is that you do you do speak to both the health aspect but also the economic aspect and and you know in building these small economies that's sort of how people become free to take charge of their own lives as well and I think that's just as important as you know um, taking care of your health is being able to lead your family and and obviously being there physically and being there physically well, but also being able to provide for them. I would actually be curious to know if, um, being that you've done so much and you've you've been working on this since, you know, the late 90s, have you learned anything along the way um, about leadership? I have learned a lot. And one of the things that I have learned um, is to be very committed. Um, And then that... That again, in terms of working with people, you need to be very humble. You need to be able to understand them and also be able to be exemplary. Rather than leading for yourself, you need to be able to lead for them. I ensure that the people that I work with learn from me as well. I work with a lot of young people and and I would like to see them uh, do things that they are not able to do. Uh, make sure that make them believe that they are able to do anything that they believe in. I I want to be an inspiration to them as well. So again, also as a Christian, I have learned to trust in God, and I believe that. What we have done is able to do what we want to do. He is able to provide for that. Mm. Yeah, I definitely um, picked up on, you, you know, the exemplary um, example, for lack of a better word, in just sort of you being in that role as a leader and having other women from the community involving them in what you're doing and them seeing you doing what you're doing. Um I, I can imagine that it's it's not only a lesson for you, but it's also a lesson for them as to what you know we as black women can actually achieve. And and on that, I I kind of have a, a follow up question. So, um, so in the West, the typical face of an NGO worker on the front lines is a middle aged white woman. 
Is this assumption correct? And if so, do you think it's important that more Black women are visible as the face of aid organizations in Africa? Well, in Africa, we are, we are African, so we don't. We I wouldn't say a typical face of um, an NGO leader will be a middle white, middle-aged white woman. Yeah. I, I I wouldn't say that because I don't see many of them here. Uh, but again, yes, if we are looking at women, it's it's important to have more women on board because the areas, the social injustices that uh, are occurring in the world can be felt strongly by women. I can talk about so many areas. I can start with uh, children, um, talk about women rights, talk about teenage uh, adolescent issues, teenage pregnancies, even land. Today, women are not allowed to co-own land. And I think in Uganda, it's still a big battle. A woman is not able to continue owning the land if her husband, when her husband dies. And that's a big issue. The land will be taken away by the family. Now, those are all things that if women were on board, they feel the pinch the most. They see their children dying. It's them who will feel the pinch when their young daughters get pregnant because they, you know, and stop going to school. It's them who will feel the pinch greatest when their rights are also abused. So having more women on board brings in a stronger voice because then they will speak out of passion. They will speak out of experience and be able to address those issues from, from at that level. Hmm. Having said that, I wonder then if, um, so when you are working in these communities and trying to intervene to obviously make people's lives better, and when we say people, you're focusing more on the female um, members of the community. Do you ever do you ever experience um, sort of men being, you know, the male leaders of their families, maybe not wanting you guys to be as involved, not wanting you to speak with their wives and influence them in any way? Has that ever happened? Oh, yes, it does happen. In the clinic, uh, we... For example, family planning. Some women would like to space their children and probably have them after every four years. But because mm. of the male domination, a man decides how many children they want. So you are on family planning and the man is like, I want to have five children. And you're thinking, I'll spread my you know, three children over 10 years. So if the man finds out that the woman is on family planning, we have had so many men come very, very aggressive and telling us not to decide for them how to run their family. Because these women sneak in and, and we, you know, they get a, a family planning tool that maybe the husband doesn't know about. So we have gone back to men and we speak to them and say, you know, it's important you space your children but again, it's also important that you listen to your wife's uh, decision. If she wants three children, why do you force her to have five? If she feels that she's really tired now, she can't have any more. So that, that makes me so ways. angry. <laughs> that really makes yes. me angry. <laughs> it does. It does make us angry. But again, so this is where we we really feel that you know 
being there as a woman, a man who probably wouldn't feel the, the burden that woman is carrying, you know. But us being there, we then, we then talk to the men. We also counsel the women. And so, you know, and, and, and several other areas we, where we have found men really angry that decisions <laughs> are being made by men, women here. Yeah. <laughs> With that being said... As a female leader, what gives you hope for the next generation of women in Africa or maybe even just in Uganda? There are more girls going to school now than they were probably in my mother's time. There are more girls that are exposed. There's, social media has also opened the eyes and, and enlightened and exposed more women and girls. So with that, um, girls in the future will be more enlightened, more educated, more empowered. And with that, we should see an opportunity for them to advance and also reduce the, the, you know, the disadvantages or the, you know, the challenges that they have been, women have been going through in, in, even in my times or in my parents' times we should see that reduced. So I really remain hopeful that things will change and we'll see more women, you know, achieving what they want. Yeah. That, that, I mean, and I, and I can see that, you know, it, it's going to be hard not for that to happen, right? If, if you guys are really making inroads in the community, you've got women on staff who are obviously seeing your example taking that back to their own families, then um, hopefully it's it's a bit of an unsto- unstoppable force. <laughs> yes. So for our listeners who may want to get involved with NGO work, what wisdom would you impart? What would you tell them to, to look at, to think about, to consider? What I can advise anyone who's thinking of entering the NGO, the needs, especially if they're working with communities, must be must be coming from the community themselves. They need to have better dialogue and address their needs rather than come up with an idea and think that it will work. Um, and also study well what it, what areas they really want to to address. There are still so many gaps that uh, need to be uh, worked on that are not yet being, uh, you know, cha- uh, addressed. So it's very important to be more focused and also be able to work very closely with that community if they're working with a community. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, it's been great listening to your experiences obviously about your community, but also your work with the community. Can you let our listeners know where they can connect with Caring Community Initiatives Uganda on social media and how they could possibly help the organization? Yes, uh, we are on website, www.caringcommunity.org. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, and on Twitter, same Caring Community. We are definitely going through the pandemic and at the moment there are still a lot of challenges. We want to ensure that more people are, are following the 
directives and the guidelines of prevention against uh, COVID. But that is not the only challenge that we have increased numbers of malaria, uh, pneumonia, um, especially amongst young children under five. Uh, we are also seeing more mothers delivering from home because of distance for the period of lockdown. Most people have not been able to to walk to the health center, and that it, it brings in challenges. They cannot come to the clinic. We definitely need more protective equipment, and so if there is anyone out there, we would love any support. Uh, in terms of pup, uh, the PPEs, also to support our health workers who are definitely traumatized by the, the number of cases rising in our community. So you can find our links for through either through Global Giving, uh, that is an area where you can pay from, or through our website. We have links there that you can also support us through. Um, even through mobile money, uh, you can send, uh, if you are in Uganda, through the number 0772-640-698. All those help would go towards supporting the work that we are doing. No problem. And we'll definitely include all of that information in our show notes as well for this episode. So Hope, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy, um, but it's been great speaking with you. And I hope that this will definitely, you know, shed a light on a really good organization and what you guys are doing there in Uganda. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Speaking with Hope about women-led leadership in Uganda was not only eye-opening, but also encouraged me to examine my assumptions about NGOs and the importance of challenging those assumptions by highlighting less visible leaders and organizers working to improve the lives of women on the continent. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this and future episodes. Email us at sfgpod at gmail.com and let's keep the conversation going. Tune in next week when we discuss navigating the workplace. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow Sisters, Friends and Guests on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.